Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. It's good to see all of you this morning. I want to invite you to take your Bible and join me in the passage that Dr. Keith Lee read a moment ago, the book of the Revelation. This is going to be our study throughout the semester. It's interesting, a number of the men that I contacted and invited to chapel said that they were delighted to come. And then when I informed them of the particular passage, they would be preaching from Revelation, and they quickly declined. A number of them said to me, I have never preached from the book, nor do I intend to. And so you will discover uh, this semester that quite a number of those that will be filling the pulpit are professors here at Southeastern because they value their job security. (laughs) And they could not turn me down. But you know, I need to be somewhat sympathetic to those that uh, decline because they are part of a rather significant tradition Uh, Neither John Calvin or Martin Luther wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. And Luther, in one of his less inspired moments, said, and I quote, My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. There is one sufficient reason for the small esteem in which I hold it, that Christ is neither taught nor recognized. Well, I'm not sure what book Luther had been reading when he made that statement because of all the books in the Bible. I do not believe there is any that exalts and magnifies the greatness and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ more than the book of Revelation. Because when we enter into this book, we indeed meet the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the ruler of the kings on earth. As we walk our way through these 22 chapters, we will discover a number of interesting things. The book is comprised of 404 verses, and yet in those verses, there are 285 Old Testament citations, and scholars have identified more than 550 Old Testament allusions. Furthermore, the theme of the book of Revelation is the theme of the Bible. It is the greatness and the glory of Jesus. From chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 22, verse 21, the apocalypse is from Jesus. It is about Jesus, as he is indeed the focus of the Bible, so he is the focus of this book. In fact, we're going to see that in this book, he is nothing less than the majestic and glorious warrior lamb who is indeed coming again to rule and to reign forever. Now, as we consider the book of Revelation, again, let me give you some background information to set the table. It was written by the last living apostle, the apostle John. He also gave us a gospel, and he gave us three letters that bear his name. We will see in chapter 1 and verse 9 that he was on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. It was about 70 miles south of Ephesus. John was a prisoner there. The island of Patmos served as a Roman penal colony for Roman criminals, and he had been exiled, I believe, under the reign of Domitian, who had reigned from 81 to 96 A.D., and he tells us he was there because of his faithfulness 
and his witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we prepare to walk through the 22 chapters this semester through the apocalypse, a very important question has to be raised and answered. What interpretive method should we employ when we come to interpreting Revelation? And in the history of interpretation, there are four different views that have stood out. A, the preterist view. The book addresses details and events in the first century. Secondly, and one that is very popular among our millennial brothers and sisters, the book addresses timeless truths and does not deal with specific historical events. Third, historicism. Uh, which is a view that is not much in vogue today, but it was viewed for a number of years and by many significant commentators as a chronicle of Western church history. But then fourthly, there is the futurist view. And this views the book beginning in chapter 4 or at least chapter 6 through the end of the book as that which speaks primarily to future events at the end of history and then preparing us for the eternal state that is discussed in chapters 21 and 22. Now, personally, I uh, appreciate very much, and I affirm the perspective of the now deceased and in heaven, uh, New Testament scholar Grant Osborne. By the way, Dr. Osborne wrote, in my judgment, a superb commentary on the book of Revelation. Uh, his view is not exactly mine at every point, but it is a very, very fine commentary that anyone teaching through the book would be well served to consult. And this is what he says. The solution, that is to the interpretive approach, is to allow the preterist, idealist, and futurist methods to interact in such a way that the strengths are maximized and the weaknesses minimized. For instance, and I agree with him completely here, the beast of chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, refers both to the many antichrists throughout church history and to the final antichrist at the end of history. The futurist rather than the idealist position is primary, but the Praetorist school is also correct because the visions used uh, these events of the future to address John and his readers in the present. Most of the imagery used to describe the beast and Babylon the Great comes from actual first century parallels. The beast is a final Nero-like figure, and Babylon the final unholy Roman empire. I would have used the word world empire there, but I uh, understand what he means, and there is merit in that statement. He says, one of my definitions for apocalyptic is the present addressed through parallels with the future. John's readers then were being asked to identify with the people at the end of history and gain perspective for their present suffering through the future trials of God's people. This then leads us to the idealist position also intended in the text, for these final events are also timeless symbols meant to challenge the church in every era. And so one of the challenges when it comes to a book like Revelation is not to underinterpret it, but even more specifically, not to overinterpret it and read into it things that the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, never intended. 
So with those words as an introduction, let's move to the text. And I break the passage down into two major pieces since I'm dealing with the entire uh, first chapter, the prologue that begins in chapter 1 and goes through chapter 8, and then the glorious vision of Christ beginning in chapter 9 and going, or beginning in verse 9 and going through verse 20. So first of all, let us hear from the great king in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Here we see that our Lord speaks from heaven, and he does so in three specific ways. Number one, let us read, listen, and obey his word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants things that must soon take place. Now, let me stop there and make an observation. Revelation is a unique book because it is comprised of three different literary genres. I just read it is an apocalypse, verse 1. We also see and heard a moment ago in verse 3, it is a prophecy. But also we know that it is a letter because John is told by the Lord to write to the seven churches located in Asia Minor. But also note with me the heavenly chain of communication that you see there in verse 1. It is a revelation and unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And then he specifies what he means by that. He made it known by sending his angel, by the way, the word angel occurs more than 60 times, in fact, 67 times in the book of Revelation. It speaks of angels more than any other book. The other two that come close to it in terms of uh, of use is the book of Daniel and also the book of Zechariah. And so God gives the vision to Jesus. Jesus gives the vision to an angel, and an angel then gives the vision to his servant John, who then has the responsibility of passing on that vision to you and to me. So he tells us there in verse 1 that God gave it to him to show his servants, and note the phrase that occurs next, things that must soon take place. Also note the end of verse 3, Write or, or tell them they are blessed, those who keep what is written for the time is near. Now, what do we make out of those two statements? Well, again, I think that there is uh, good help given to us first by a New Testament scholar named Alan Johnson, I quote, in eschatology and apocalyptic literature. The future is always viewed as imminent. The church in every age has always lived with the expectancy of the consummation of all things in its own day. And I love this statement. Imminent describes an event that is possible any day, impossible no day. And that is a great way, I think, of describing what apocalyptic literature is intended to communicate to every generation of believers. Possible any day, impossible no day. But again, Grant Osborne also adds a helpful word when he adds and writes, Revelation then must be characterized not as apocalyptic, but as prophetic apocalyptic. 
Its purpose is not merely to outline the future intervention of God or to portray the people of God symbolically in light of that divine reality, but to call the saints to accountability on that basis. It is a prophetic book of warning as well as a comfort to the church. And so look at how he concludes then the first three verses here. An apocalypse of Jesus Christ. God gave it to him to show to his servants, to his slaves, the same things that must soon come to place, must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, to his slave John, and then he gives us insight about why John is a prisoner on the island of Patmos. Uh, he bore witness first to the word of God, and secondly, to the testimony, most likely the intended meaning is the gospel, but he bore witness to as the servant of God, the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. And then verse 3 gives us something that is completely unique to the book of Revelation, a promised blessing to those who indeed pour their lives in to this book, but notice how he describes it. Blessed is the one who, number one, reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who secondly hear. And number three, blessed are those who keep what is written for the time is near. So we are to read the book, we are to hear the book, and we are to obey the word of God. So we should read, listen, and obey. But secondly, let us also worship the great triune God. Look at verses 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, that is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, grace to you and peace, a, a familiar greeting that we know well from the letters of Paul, grace to you and peace, and then note the interesting phrases that follow. From him who is, normally it is him who was and is and is to come, but no, this uh, particular description begins with him who is. Why? Because the church at this time is going through suffering, and they need to be reminded that the God who has always existed is with them right now. They're not going through suffering without the knowledge, and not only the knowledge, but as we will see, he emphasized again and again the presence of the Lord with them. So it is from him who is and who was and who is to come, clearly a reference to God the Father and drawing upon the, the designation of Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, the, the great I am. And then secondly, a very interesting phrase from the seven spirits who are before his throne. I personally believe that the seven here, uh, one of the most prevalent numbers in the book of Revelation is symbolic of that which is perfect, uh, that which is complete, even that which is full. And therefore, because God the Father is mentioned and then God the Son is mentioned, I am convinced that this is not a reference to angels, but rather it is a reference to the perfect, the complete, and the full Holy Spirit of God, who is forever before his throne. And then thirdly, verse 5, from Jesus Christ, who is described first as the faithful witness, secondly, as the 
firstborn from the dead, we find similar language in Paul in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. And then thirdly, he is described as the ruler of the kings of the earth. So John begins, first of all, in verse 5 by giving attention to the person of Christ, but then he moves to talk about the work of Christ to him who first loves us. I love the fact that it is in the present tense, not that he loved us in the past, which he certainly did, but the one who loves us today and secondly, has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, quickly, a textual matter that I have provided for you with a, uh, 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 something on the screen. Both the King James Version and the New King James Version read the word washed, viewing sin as a stain. And I would agree that uh, the, that is certainly true to what the Bible teaches. But I think the better textual reading here is that he loosed, he freed us or set us free from our sin. Now, if it is accurate that it is a, 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 a that he has uh, washed us, then of course the apocalypse and, and John is viewing sin as a stain. But if the idea is that he has loosed or freed us, then of course the idea is that sin is a chain. And again, both are true. He has washed us from the stain of sin, and he has set us free from the chain of sin. And again, uh, adding a little theology here, he has freed us from sin's penalty. That is our justification. He is freeing us from sin's power. That is our sanctification. And he will free us from sin's presence. That is our glorification. And so having set us free from sin, he has made us a kingdom of priests. That's probably the better idea, although he uh, speaks of it in the, in the ESV as a kingdom and priest to our God. Both, again, are true, but I think the idea is a kingdom of priests to God and our Father. And then John just has to pause for a moment and give a word of worship and praise to him then be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So be it. It is so. And so we have seen, first of all, that we are to read, listen, obey his word. Secondly, we are to worship the great triune God. But then number three, we should also look for the return of the king. Look at what the Bible says there in verse 7 and verse 8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. That is clearly a reference back to both Daniel chapter 7 and what Jesus himself said of his coming again in Matthew chapter 24. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and appealing to uh, not only Daniel chapter 7, but Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, I believe, a reference to the nation of Israel, which is what it clearly means in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, but he doesn't limit the, uh, uh, the vision of those who will see him when he comes again. Not only will those who pierced him see him, but all the tribes of the earth will wail, they will mourn on account of him. And he says, even so may it be, amen. 
And so for those of us who know him as Lord and Savior, we indeed look for what Paul calls the blessed hope in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. But it is also the case that there will be those on the earth when he comes again who will not rejoice, but they will mourn because they have rejected the one who was pierced on their behalf. And so we see in this great vision that he is indeed coming again. So John tells us, let us hear from the great king. But then secondly, in verses 9 through 20, the Bible says, let us also see the great king. What we're about to see is the first of three glorious visions that you find in the apocalypse to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the one here in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. There is a second one in Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 through 14. And then the glorious second coming again is portrayed in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Now, before we see the vision, we must consider a commission that we see to his servants, verses 9 through 11. I, John who is your brother and your partner, your fellowshipper in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Don't miss that. Are we already in his kingdom? Absolutely. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And yet it is a foretaste of glory divine. We live, as theologians often say, in the now and the not yet. And so we are in the kingdom right now, but because the kingdom has not yet come in all of its fullness, as Paul teaches us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, all who live godly lives can expect persecution, can expect tribulation in this life. Just yesterday, uh, Open Door Ministries released their annual report of the persecuted church. I have now sitting on my desk over at the house, I printed it out, 50 of the most persecuted countries, persecuting countries in the world, identifying for us again the suffering, uh, the tribulation, and the required perseverance of so many of our brothers and sisters around the world who are there because that is where Jesus Christ, their Lord and their Master and their King and their Savior wants them. And we should never think that we are above that. We should never think that we are immune to that. In fact, if anything, we should rejoice that at this particular moment in time, he blesses us with the peace and the freedoms and, and all that we enjoy here, but we should never assume that it is our right. In fact, it would not take much at all for even America to become a place of persecution for the believing church. And so John himself, an apostle, the one whom Jesus dearly loved says, I was on the island of Patmos, and I was there because of my faithfulness to the Word of God and also my faithfulness to the testimony, to the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then John tells us, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, that phrase in the Spirit's interesting. It will occur four times in the book, of Revelation. In fact, there are some New Testament commentators who believe that you ought to outline the book around those four particular phrases that are here in chapter 1, verse 10, again in chapter 4, verse 2, again in chapter 17, verse 3, 
And again in chapter 21 and verse 10, and though I think they do signify very crucial movements in the book, I don't think it is the key in terms of the progression of the book. But he says, I was in the Spirit, and I was in the Spirit on what he calls the Lord's Day. Now, some people think that we should understand that as I was in the Spirit on the the day of the Lord, and he's drawing upon that apocalyptic idea. But I uh, am more in agreement with those who, and it is the majority view, that by the Lord's Day, he means the, the day of worship. Uh, the first day of the week, the day on which our Lord rose from the dead. And so John says, I was taken up by the Spirit in an ecstatic kind of a way. Uh, It was on the day of worship. And then he says, and uh, I heard behind me a loud voice. It was the voice like a trumpet. And it said to me, write what you have seen in a book. And praise God, John was obedient and send it first to the seven churches, that is, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and uh, Laodicea. And so John receives a commission from the Lord to write down in a book the vision or the visions that will comprise the final vision of the book of the Revelation. But then note with me in verses 12 through 16, the vision of his person. John says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now, let me make a quick comment. And then we're going to walk through the vision very rapidly. Thankfully, Jesus is our interpreter as to what the golden lampstands are in verse 20. In fact, not only does he address the lampstands, he also addresses the seven stars that will be mentioned in just a moment. And so jot down with me for just a moment to verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, that is the hand of authority, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, The seven stars are the angels. Now, some people say they're the pastors. I kind of like that idea because I like to think of pastors as as angels. Pastors are angels. Deacons are demons. No, I'm not not serious about that. Uh, That's just being playful, sort of. But anyway, (laughs) the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the lampstands are the seven churches churches. So the Lord Jesus provides for us a very clear interpretation of what the golden lampstands are. But now note how the vision unfolds here, beginning there in verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, that is right there with them, I saw one like a son of man. Of course, the son of man is the Lord Jesus. Both his title and his location are significant. The title, as we mentioned a moment ago, goes back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It is Jesus' favorite self-designation occurring 81 times in the gospel. But we need to make sure that we interpret that phrase correctly. Sometimes people say, well, Son of God emphasizes his deity and Son of Man emphasizes his humanity. And that is simply not true 
to the Bible. No, Son of Man identifies him as that heavenly messianic figure of Daniel chapter 7 who will receive an eternal kingdom because he is God. And again, his location is in the midst, that is the middle of the lampstands. He is there with his churches. And then he says concerning the Son of Man, first and foremost, he was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash. It was around his chest. Uh, the appearance again of our Lord draws on Daniel 7. It also is going to draw on the threefold office of our Lord as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. And so in his dress, he is our priest. He is dressed, as the text says, in a long robe. And he has a golden sash wrapped around his chest. You can refer to Exodus chapter 28 and verse 4 and find very similar language. And so he is our high priest, whoever lives to make intercession for us. He is our high priest who is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to God by him. But also, he in his wisdom, he is profound. He says there in verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, even like snow. And of course, this emphasizes his wisdom, uh, his omniscience, and the fact that he knows all things in his purity and in his perfections and in his holiness. But he continues, his eyes, he says, were like a flame of fire. This, of course, refers to his penetrating insight and his omniscient intelligence. You'll see the same phrase in chapter 19 and verse 12. That is the idea that he looks deep into every soul and every heart. I often say to people, no one knows you like Jesus. And praise God, no one knows you like Jesus. I would dare say this morning that if any one of you knew me in all of my sinfulness and all of my depravity and if you knew some of the things that have passed through my mind and have welled up in my heart I, I will tell you you would never see me again I would be so embarrassed and so ashamed and yet the beauty of the gospel is knowing us like that he still loves us and he still died for us his eyes are like a fiery flame a flame of fire but he continues, in his strength, he is permanent. He tells us there his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. The idea is he is strong. He is stable. Uh, he is uh, solid in terms of his strength and his power and his dependability. But also his announcement is powerful. He concludes verse 15, his voice. It was like we saw earlier a trumpet. But now he says it's like the roar of many waters, like the sound of cascading waters pouring down, telling us of his awesome power and his pervasive authority. But then he moves to verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Of course, we just saw that the Lord Jesus informs us of who these are. And these seven stars, his angels, are in his right hand, which is the hand of authority, the hand of honor. And it tells us that they are his possession and also they are under his protection. Again, in verse 16, he tells us that he is perfect in his judgments for out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. 
The sharp two-edged sword is mentioned no less than six times in the book of the Revelation. It recalls Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 where we're told that the Word of God is a sharp two-edged sword. And, of course, it teaches us that he both cuts and he also cures. And, of course, we are informed in Revelation that that sharp two-edged sword in chapter 19 is the Word of God. And then finally, in terms of the vision, he tells us that he is praiseworthy in verse 16. Not only in his right hand are the seven stars, but not only does from his mouth comes the sharp two-edged sword, but his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. Speaking of its brilliance, of his holiness, of his majesty, and of his awesomeness. And so this is the vision that John is granted at the very beginning of the apocalypse before he will move through the remainder of the vision and write the book, which leads us to our final point this morning. We see a declaration of his power and his plan in verses 17 through 20. John says, when I saw this, when I saw the Lord Jesus in all of his brilliance and all of his glory and majesty, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. And that is certainly understandable but then he says in a very loving and tender and gentle way he laid his right hand on me and he said to me fear not and what follows is no less than five wonderful descriptions of the brilliant and the glorious lord jesus christ he says first of all i am the first the protos and the last the eschatos this, by the way, is said of God in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6 and chapter 48 and verse 12. But now we see it as a reference to the Lord Jesus here in chapter 1. But we will see it again in chapter 22, verse 8, and chapter 22 and verse 13, simply reminding us again that he is God. Of course, it speaks of his absolute authority over all the creation and all of history. He says to him again, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And as a result of that, I have the key, speaking of authority, of death and Hades. That is, I have absolute authority over death, over hell, and over the grave. And then again, the Lord Jesus is our help in terms of interpretation, giving us what I believe is the key that unlocks the book of Revelation, verse 19, right therefore, the things that you have seen, I believe this looks back to chapter 1, and in particular, verses 9 through 20. Secondly, what is, which looks to the seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, and what will take place after this, looking to the future and chapters 4 through 22. And so again, I believe that the book of Revelation is rightly understood to draw imagery from the first century, to speak of timeless truths, and yet there is certainly, I believe, a portrait and a picture and a promise of what the future will be like from chapter 4 through chapter 22. A number of years ago, I was talking to my colleague at Southern Seminary, Bob Stein, one of the most brilliant and gifted New Testament scholars I've ever known, and we were talking about the book of Revelation and what an enigma it is and, and what a challenge it is, and he said, you know, it's interesting. On more than one occasion, I have been on the mission field 
uh, in house churches in uh, persecuted countries and meeting with believers in secret, uh, trying to stay away from the, the scrutiny and the knowledge of the, of the police force and so on. He said, I've often asked them this simple question. What is your favorite books in the Bible? And he said, you know, I thought before they answered that some would say the Psalms or maybe one of the Gospels, in particular the Gospel of John, uh, maybe the book of uh, Romans or something like that. And he said, but over and over and over, the response would be, oh, our favorite books are Daniel and Revelation. And he said, I would ask them, well, why are those your favorite books? And often he would say with tears streaming down their face, they would say, because those books teach us that in the end, our God wins. Folks, that is indeed the promise of the book of Revelation. I believe it's going to be a wonderful journey through the remainder of this semester. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the fact that the Lord Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And we thank you that you have given us in this first chapter an incredible vision of the one whose glory and majesty will be unfolded for the remainder of the book. Lord, it is a challenging book. We don't deny that. And there are many things in it that we have to be honest and say we're not exactly sure what they are about. But Lord, this much we do know. It is a book that glorifies magnificently the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a book that teaches us with crystal clear clarity that in the end, our God wins. What a promise and what a hope for every generation of believers. May we as this current generation live always and forever in the light of that promise and the light of that hope. We ask and we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.